Take your Bible, start to the book of Acts chapter 11. On Wednesday nights, we have been looking at some vignettes in the book of Acts. Tonight we're actually covering a section that I will not uh, do on Sunday. And so I want to make sure we cover that this evening. So we'll be there in Acts chapter 11, the last few verses in a moment. Okay, let's all stand together tonight. Just a few verses here we're going to consider. And uh, nothing real dramatic here, but I, I really don't want to ignore a section. And I want to cover these as we work our way on Sunday mornings through the book of Acts. And so the context here is, um, of course, the, we had just a parallel uh, section this last Sunday um, after the stoning of Stephen and how uh, churches were being started primarily in focus was Antioch and how Antioch um, um, grew as a church rapidly. This is where the first time that the Jews began sharing their faith with the Greeks and surprisingly to them, not to us, uh, the gospel had power in their hearts and many were saved. And in a way, not in a way, a church was birthed in Antioch. And really going forward, Antioch becomes more of a principal uh, church in some ways than does Jerusalem. But together they kind of grow. And so what happens in our text tonight, um, Jerusalem, this, I guess the mother church in a way, the one that is starting new churches, falls into a time of difficulty. And so that's what's being addressed this evening. So in verse number 27, the Bible says, And in these days... Came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth. And this would be a famine throughout all the world. And of course, that would be the world they'd be familiar with, the Mediterranean. Which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. This was an emperor. Then the disciples every man according to his ability, and this is the word we're going to focus on tonight, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the night and the beautiful day we've enjoyed. Lord, we thank You for the ability, the health to enjoy the fellowship tonight, to be here. Lord, I pray that as we uh, sit here tonight that we'd give attention to your word. That, Lord, we try to be alert and pay attention to the truth that you present here to us. Lord, this example of grace giving to those who would stand in need. And, Lord, certainly at the outset we, we pray that you'd help our hearts to always be willing to be determined in our giving. That we would have the same spirit. Lord, this is obviously help as an example, Lord, for us to follow. I pray that we would. And ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. The church at Antioch um, was started and grew rapidly um, because of some unnamed Christians who simply took the gospel with them from the dispersion from Jerusalem. We don't know the number of disciples uh, that left Jerusalem during this time of persecution that culminated in Stephen's death. We just know that Stephen was stoned and then the Bible says a great number of disciples fled. And they went to some, I really guess in every direction, but the Bible tells us about a number of places they went, mostly um, out to sea in the Mediterranean, two large islands, and then of course up into Syria, which would be north of Jerusalem, about 300 miles uh, from where they were. So they traveled quite a distance in those days, especially a long distance. And most likely some of these men had some familiarity that the people who were saved at this point were primarily Jews, Hellenistic Jews, and they may have been going back home 
after having stayed in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost and being saved, they want to be part of that, they stayed. So the persecution, some of them may, may have been going back home, or this was just a, like a safe haven 300 miles away. But the disciples, or believers I should say, traveled to these places. And um, when they went, they, they took their belongings. I think about this, that, that had to be a challenging and daunting effort to relocate. Because they had to relocate, that means taking all their positions, going to a new place. They had to find a place to live or reside. They had to find a vocation or a way to make a living. They had to, you know, get assimilated into a new community. And to be honest, for those who weren't familiar with Antioch, it would have been partially a new culture because it was dominated by the Greeks. And it would have been very different than Jerusalem. But they did that. They made this their home. And more than that, they made a church there. And they took their faith and uh, understanding the importance of the message uh, that they had in their hearts, this gospel of God that had the power to, to deliver their soul from hell and to take them to heaven, to provide the forgiveness of sins and, and, and a new life. They took that truth with them and they shared the, the birth, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, His atonement for sins for them. And he shared, they shared that love and grace with primarily a Grecian audience there in Antioch and these other places. Um, in Antioch, a new community of believers began to grow, uh, made up of some converted Jews, but the Bible would indicate primarily now Greek believers. And Barnabas was sent, and we studied this Sunday, to establish this new church, if you would, and to make sure they had right teaching. They had zeal, no doubt. They were excited about the gospel and being saved, but they needed to be grounded. And so Barnabas was sent, and I'm guessing because he was such an encourager, he did that. He went and verified the fact that the, these Grecians or these pagans had been saved. He sent word back to Jerusalem that they were. And then seeing the task was so great with so many new believers, he thought, this is bigger than me. Um, he travels for, he takes a break, a time out. He says, I got to go to Tarsus. There's a guy there I know who has a great intellect. He was trained as a Pharisee, but now as a Christian. His name is Paul. And he knew about Paul's uh, conversion. He was the first one who introduced them. Uh, to the disciples. Uh, as we know, Paul went to Tarsus for a number of years. So Barnabas goes back and gets him. He brings him back to Antioch. And this duo began to teach and confirm these new disciples. That means just ground them in doctrinal truth, most likely, for one year's time. And so they, that, they make that endeavor, establishing this church. And that's so important because as you establish your base, you make it more possible for, to grow from that when it is strong. So during that time, I don't know where in that year time this would have occurred, but it would have occurred after many were saved and Barnabas and Saul were present. Um, a contingency of men travel from Jerusalem to Antioch. And the Bible calls them prophets. And one in particular, his name was Agabus. And uh, these men seem to be operating in the same function as the Old Testament prophets did. They had a special revelation from God uh, to declare a message to the people. Now, we don't see prophets really going forward in the New Testament, just as the apostles died, uh, or apostleship died when they died out, because the qualification of apostle was someone who was an eyewitness of Christ. So, when they died, the apostleship died, and it seems that the prophetic, in, at least in this way, uh, diminished greatly. We, we don't see that today, where God spoke to them in a special way uh, to reveal things. And we see these really displaced by pastors and evangelists in time. But this was operational this time. 
because we're told that it was. And this man named Agabus came with a message. And um, his message was, was basically this. God had told him that a dearth was coming. Now, that word for us would basically mean famine. A famine was coming, and it would come during the reign of Claudius. Now, we know that Claudius historically reigned from 41 A.D. to about 52 A.D. or maybe 54 A.D. And history records that there was actually five famines during the reign of Claudius. And um, it was a particular climate area where they, they received too much well, this is kind of interesting. I say drought. What actually happened, there was too much rain, and it washed much of the farming crop of Egypt away. And because of that, following the, the, this uh, drought, or this flood, really, on the plains of Egypt, there was kind of no dirt there. So there was the opposite. There was this famine created because of the, little, the two little crops. And what happens there is something that we're familiar with lately, inflation. And so prices go up. And there was little grain, but what little grain there was, was uh, really out of the price for the average person. And, and so what's happening here, these people are going to starve. Because most of all the grain um, in the Mediterranean was grown in Egypt. It was the one place along the Fertile Nile where grain could be grown. But the situation could be created where there isn't any. And so provision had to be made to basically buy it at these exorbitant uh, prices. And so, uh, Agabus signals that this is going to come and that it would be wise and God intends for the church of Antioch, uh, the first place, to begin to make provision and to give back towards the church in Jerusalem for their need. So, here we have a church in its infant years, um, still being doctrinally grounded, because again, Paul and Barnabas were there for a year. Don't know how much that work had been done, but they're being asked pretty quickly to give to the church of Jerusalem. Now, that sounds easy in a way, but they're still learning what giving is about. These people are newly saved, and it wasn't probably the practice of Grecians to give away significant amounts of their income. So, this is a new practice. And added to that, to make it more difficult, um, they were being asked to give to the Jews, which historically knew that they had animosity towards them. And so that animosity probably flowed in both directions, Jew to Gentile and Gentile to Jew. But they understood their salvation came from the Jews. And so some of this, this, this gap was being bridged by the gospel itself. But there's a lot here to consider. We look at it kind of axiomatically. Well, they ask it, they did it. But there's, a, there's kind of an uphill climb that we don't see that they traversed to have that spirit to do so. So, in a way, the fruit, Antioch, is being asked to give back to the root of Jerusalem. And no doubt, Barnabas, who was a very generous person, as we know, on multiple occasions, he and the Apostle Paul probably encouraged them to be generous and to meet this need. Because there's this principle, you know, that goes to the Word of God, that, you know, if someone is a spiritual blessing to us, that it's right and good to give back physical blessing to them. And so, no doubt that was said. But if you look with me in verse number 29, there's some instruction here about how they were to give, how they would lend this aid. And again, this had to be primarily money because stores of grain wouldn't have been transferred 300 miles. So, they're giving money to purchase grain at, at you know, place, uh, prices of great inflation. And so, verse 29 says, And then the disciples, and the Bible says, Every man 
according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren that dwelt in Jerusalem. And so here's a thought. We have this conglomerate church of many people newly saved, and the Bible specifies that every man in the church made a determination to give. And I think that should always be the goal in every church, and especially at Eastland Baptist Church. Whatever we do, I think everyone ought to be involved in participating and helping in what we do. We all enjoy this building. We all enjoy the facilities here. We all enjoy, we're all helped and blessed here. And because of that, I think every man, every person, every family, individual who would have any kind of income should be a participant. And so we, we see this kind of distribution of giving based on every man. And then next the Bible says, according to his ability. And so everyone gave, but not everyone gave the same. And that wasn't asked of them. Um, there's, there's, the Bible doesn't indicate any great compulsion here. No browbeating, no, no guilting. It was just presented, hey, there's this need in the, in, in the church, which, by the way, brought the gospel to us. And we're going to be saved. We're, we're, stay, we're saved and going to heaven one day because of their efforts. And so these people have a need. A dearth is coming. So part of this had to be taken on faith. And despite the animosity we have historically had and the great distance and you have to impoverish yourself so they can have something, all these are uphill climbs. Um, the Bible says every man participated this and they were to give according to their income or their, that's what's meant by their ability. You know, they, they had to give from the pot that they have. So everyone has a part and the Bible says they did so. And we know that because chapter 12, which we're going to get into, indicates they did. And Paul and Barnabas did take the money, and I think the last verse of chapter 12 indicates that they gave that money, and then they departed back to Antioch. And so this money was sent by their hands and delivered to the elders, which, by the way, is the first time that term is used in the New Testament, is to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and distribution was made to the people after, I'm sure, this food was purchased. And so chapter 12 records that. And so I want us to see in the text something that God intends and desires, I think, as an example here, because He includes it, for churches and members in churches to be a part of. And if I was to still and summarize that, it would go like this. God intends for us to help people. God intends for us to help those who are not necessarily members of Eastland Baptist Church. That our concern and uh, of the welfare of others, yes, we should be, and rightly so, greatly concerned about the membership of Eastland and what happens here. But we should never become so isolated and narrow in view that we stop considering the need of other people around the world. That we should have empathy and a part in giving to the needs of other Christians that exist uh, at least 300 miles away, if not 50 miles away, and or 3,000 miles away. We see that God is asking us to lend a helping hand in a real and tangible way. When I think about a church, I think about Eastland, and I consider the book of Acts as a guide, there are a number of, th there are a number of things that identify a characteristic of a church, the personality, the character of a church. And one, of course, would be preaching. And the Bible says, by the foolishness of preaching that men are saved, preaching was a primary task of the New Testament church. Uh, preaching is to be a part of church. 
And then, of course, prayer. And God's people ought to pray. They ought to do that individually. They ought to do that as families. And they ought to do that as a church. Be in prayer for God's hand to be here every, I think I can say this pretty confidently, before every single service, uh, me and the guys pray for the service we're about to, to walk into. And I, I ask God not to make this rote. I ask God to make this uh, special. I ask and invite His participation, His superintendence over what we do. I ask God to speak to us through the music. I ask God to, to use those who are going to be preaching to declare the Word, that we have ready hearts to hear the Word. And, and so prayer obviously is a big part of church. And then, of course, fellowship. And fellowship is something that really binds us together. It's a glue of connection. And so, you know, we're pretty good at that part of it, fellowship. And we do that before church. We do that after church. We have special events like 4th of July coming up. And we don't primarily have that 4th of July event. So you can see fireworks in the sky. We primarily have that event so you guys can get together in the field and talk. And, and as a family, as a church family, and, and have that time. Um, evangelism. Um, outreach is a big part of an obligation to church. And then, of course, to our point tonight, giving. Giving to sustain the church and its mechanics and operation. And then having a view outside the church to give to other people to supply uh, their needs, missionary support, establishing churches, and just helping uh, people around the world who might be in a special time of need. Giving is a principle and precept that is identified, not just something that a, that a church should do, but giving is something that is identified that Christians should do. So the disciples at Antioch were first called Christians, Christ-like ones. Um, it is our intent that we grow in the likeness of Christ. What's discipleship about? Well, discipleship or meaning God's Word and growing isn't to some amorphous end. We discipleship or, re, or Bible reading and growing is the shaping of a believer through the knowledge that we receive and the work of the Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of Christ. It is God's intent that as time passes that you take on more and more the image of Christ as a person. Does that make sense? It's not just, just to gain knowledge or to be faithful to, to some meaning. The intent of Christian growth is that every day that passes that you are chiseled and shaped more to the image of Christ. And that means in spirit, in character, in resolve, in, in, in priority. And in this tent, the priority of giving. The Bible says, for God so loved the world He gave. Really, the initiation of our faith was God's giving. And, and we learned in 2 Corinthians that the Lord who was wealthy made Himself poor that we might be rich. It's fascinating to me that Jesus had a wealth of things to speak on, but the number one topic in terms of number of verses he spoke about was giving. And I know people love that topic and love that idea. But there's a reason for that, because where a man's treasure is, there will his what? His heart be also. It's just a, it's about loyalty. And we understand that in the world we always give to what we love, which is primarily ourselves. And so we spend the vast majority of our money on ourselves and sustaining ourselves and making ourselves look better or where ourselves live and, and all that goes on. And not say a great evil, it can press into narcissism and covetousness and selfishness. But there's a principle there that God wants our hearts. And the Bible makes it clear that you can't serve God and mammon both. There's a, there's a decision that has to be made 
especially for the Christian, where our heart's going to be. So Jesus taught about this importance of giving to the kingdom of heaven. He talked about giving to other people. Um, his life itself was an act of giving in his life and in his death. Uh, again, he talked about this much, um, that money was an indicator, a barometer. It was a litmus test of the heart. And Paul too, McCall, Paul's in view in our text in Acts, Paul too spoke much of giving. And it's my opinion that much of his elaboration on giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 came from Acts chapter 11. He expounds, uh, we, we read about here a little bit, but whatever they taught there to this church at Antioch went later to the teaching to the church at Corinth, who had a heart to give initially, but struggled and follow through. And so a significant portion of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is about Paul encouraging these guys to follow through on their commitment to continue to give to the Jerusalem church that for a number of years was under this duress. And so, I want us to look at this word in the text, determined, tonight. And it's considered, uh, first consider the idea of con determined giving and flesh that out just a little bit. In the Greek, the word determined, is, it, it paints a really good word picture. It means to separate out. Okay, so um, let's all consider tonight we have a treasure chest. Okay, we would call it a bank account. And so we have this bank account, this, this, this resource, the source from which we have money. So the idea of determined is to separate out an amount. Determined. To look at what we make, and that's what's said in Acts, consider what you have, and to separate a section out. The word also means to, to cordon off or to set boundaries around. We call that, if you do that, a budget, right? Everybody has a budget. Some of us want to have enough money to make a budget, but you get the idea. Budget is the same idea. A budget is separating this out for my car payment, separating this out for my house payment, separating this out for my cable bill and out to eat and all the things that we separate out money for. Uh, or the boundary. Um, this money has a fence around it. It is to only be used for this purpose. This money is to be used for clothing. This money is to be used for these different budgetary items that, that I've already mentioned. That's the idea. We might use the word, um, we are to earmark money, or again, or to budget. That's what this Greek word kind of carries out. So we are to look at what we make and to declare a purpose for it. Um, we're to draw kind of a circle around it in a determined way. In other words, um, I'm going to assume most of you do this. When you go buy a car, do you have an idea of how much you're going to spend on the car? We'd all like to think we have that level of control, right? In other words, I'm going to go look at a $20,000 car, or I'm going to look at a $30,000 car. Because if you don't have something in mind, you could get yourself in trouble. Or you might look at it this way, I'm going to budget a $200 a month payment or a $300 a month payment. And today people budget $1,000 payments for cars. It's, it's crazy. But you get the idea? So we make an intelligent purchase based on an allotted amount of money that we've already predetermined that we're going to use for that purpose. We draw a line around it. And then once we buy it, we're obligated now. We have to circle that money up so that we have it. And we do this for our homes or cars or groceries. 
and whatever else. And so that's what the idea here is the Bible suggesting that when there are special needs that we should determine, draw a boundary around some money, and we're going to use it for that. And look up here, and for that only. Now, I'm not going to talk about tithing tonight because this is really an offering. But you should already have a boundary drawn around your ten, first 10%. Okay? <coughs> I'm getting ahead of my notes. I know I am. <coughs> but it just seemed to fit right here. Um, just as you draw a circle around your house payment money and your car payment money, and you wouldn't really dare miss that, or at least people of character don't miss their payments, your tithe already should be set aside. You shouldn't be deciding every week what you're going to give to the church in terms of tithe. We do what we do here. The needs are always going to be here. And as a matter of fact, here's the way God looks at it. And I like this idea of offense. Once you draw whatever that 10% is that has a fence around it, God says that if you step inside that fence and take some of that money that you've already designated or should have designated to Him, and you step out that side that fence and you buy something else with it, Malachi chapter 3, He calls that robbery. Even though it's your fence and your circle, it's robbery to take that money. You know, that makes sense. Um, if I have a house payment, but I use house payment money to buy something else, I'm sort of stealing from myself. It, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, I'm going to have to retire one day. And so I think there's great wisdom in us setting a fence around X amount of money we make today to set aside. And if we take money and we spend it on today that's meant for tomorrow, we're sort of robbing our tomorrow, aren't we? And so that's the idea here. In a different way, he's saying, look at your income, look at what you have, and there's this need, it's in Jerusalem, and I want you to, um, in a deliberate way, out of the cup you have, I want you to draw a circle around it. If you understand, that, that's a lot of what Paul's talking to the Corinthians about. They had done that. In other words, they had made a pledge. You know, if we have these year-long pledges that we often do, they had made a pledge. They had made a promise. And Paul's kind of marking, because what they were doing, they were probably giving that every week. And so Paul's watching the bar you know, this line go up of the money they were giving, and they got way off course in time. And so Paul writes and said, hey, I, I'm going to send uh, Timothy and Titus to you to encourage you to prove the sincerity of your love, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and your love for the Lord Jesus Christ because you know He gave and you intended to give. So you just need a little pat on the back to continue to do it. Paul used psychology to his advantage. And he encouraged them to complete that which they had started. And we're not real sure what they completely did or not, but that's the context of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And so he's asking them to, do, to draw this circle. So as this famine, which continued, um, you know, this grace giving remained a necessity evidently for, for years. And in time we know this, not only was the church at Antioch encouraged to give, but we know nearly every church the Apostle Paul started. And most likely the other churches started too, that as Paul went around on his second and third missionary journeys, that part of his message as he traveled to these churches was, Hey, the church in Jerusalem, where we all came from, they're in dire need. The famine's in that part of the world right now. Can you give? This message was really probably taken to every New Testament church 
in all these churches most likely, because we know the Philippian church did. Because again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that's what's being said there. The Macedonians gave themselves first, their own selves. You guys know the text. And, and, and so, they're helping an example. So, we know all the other churches participated uh, later in years. But these were all people that had a part in deliberate giving. And, and so, so, they did. So, very, very quickly, a thought here too. Determined giving begins with a willing mind. Take your Bibles and turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 8 real quickly. The idea of a willing mind is implied in Acts 11, but it's specifically said here to the Corinthians in chapter 8. And look with me, if you would, in verse 12. So, the starting place in giving is a willingness. Verse 12 says this, For if there be first a willing mind... Okay, that's really the starting place for all Christian endeavor is being willing to. Okay, look at it for a second. There are always going to be needs and things that need to be done by the church. Um, VBS is coming up. You know who's going to make that happen? Willing people. Talented people? I think so. But more so, willing people. It's going to happen because of creative people, no doubt, but more so by willing people. Look here. Everyone here has a life. Everyone here has obligations. All of us have jobs. In other words, so much of our life is alike. But what really separates people in terms of maybe category and the world makes all kinds of categories there, is willing and unwilling. And God says, um, you need to be willing. That's the starting place for giving. That's the starting place for service. That's the starting place for really everything Christian is, is willingness. Well, where does willingness come from? Well, it's, it's an act of the mind, but it primarily comes from the heart. Has to have a willing mind, but the idea there is really a willing heart. There has to be something in here that provides the impetus for me to give and sacrifice out there. And that's why Paul presses the point in chapter 8, uh, this is a proof of your love. Giving is that. It's, it's a proof of what's in the heart. We give to something because we love something. We give to something also because we understand something. Um, I give to my children because I love them. I also give to them because I understand it's for their benefit, and they need that. Um, it came from the understanding that someone gave to me, and so I should give. It came from the understanding that what I have has come from the Lord. Every good gift comes from above. That salvation came to me. I, I can't be a, a dead-end receptacle. I should pour out the grace of God that's given me to other people. That's a motivation. So I give because of a heart of love, and I give because I understand these things. Lamentation says, my eye has affected my heart. Um, it comes from time and experience, knowing that this is the way the world works, that the world works in this economy by, by giving. And it comes from a desire to obey God and receive a blessing from Him. In other words, give and it shall be given unto you. God is not a debtor. Um, we reap what we sow. Paul makes a big point about this in chapter 9, 
that those who sow sparingly are going to reap sparingly, but those who row, uh, sow richly or abundantly will receive that in the same way. So, time we realize, hey, I, I may impoverish myself for the moment, but I, I, in some way, you know, God is going to make sure that my needs are met. And he says, you know, even in a way that is beyond my ability to understand, he, he will do that. And so we need to be willing because we love, we understand. And so I have that information and then I'm going to give. And then the text goes on to say, and go ahead and look at me in the same text um, in chapter 8, verse um, 12 again. For if there verse be a willing mind, it accept it according to that a man hath. Okay. So this is the second criteria. Okay. I have to be willing and then I have to look at what I have. Now, this is just super common sense. I can't give what I don't have. Now, the Macedonians tried. Well, I don't have a lot, but I'll give myself. I'll give my service. I'll, I'll give that. But even then, you have to give from self. So, God says, okay, you have a willing mind based on love and understanding, and then you have to look at the resources that you actually possess. Now, look here. That's bigger than we might realize. What we have, Right? Because we can kind of really narrow that down. Well, I have this discretionary money. Well, that may not be the pool God's looking for you to give from. You with me? If we use Barnabas as an example of giving from what he hath, what did he do? The first time he gave, he sold land. Okay, I just lost everybody right there. <laughs> I mean, now let's think about it. What does a man hath? When we built this building um, years and years ago, people gave truly from what they had. Very few people gave from the discretionary budget. People did sell land. People did sell stock. People did sell boats or cars. The auditorium you're sitting in, if you're new here, it was paid with in some measure, by that kind of money too. Yes, systematic weekly giving, but there were people who sold and gave from what they had. I'm not suggesting that you do that on a weekly, monthly, or even yearly basis. But I would say this, if there was a need that captured your heart and God spoke to you to determine to do that, does have scriptural precept and premise. Because the Bible says in the beginning of Acts, which is not necessarily an example we should always follow, that lots of people sold from that pool. Okay? Now, look at when you say that, the 10% isn't so bad, is it? But that's the idea. Look at what you have. And they looked at it more that way than, than we might. A lot, for all, a lot of us, those things are untouchable. Plus, we owe all that. We couldn't give it away if we wanted to. But that's what he's asking. Giving according to man hath and not what he hath not. It may be in my heart to give a million dollars, but I don't have it, I can't give it. But I maybe can give 10 or 100 or 1,000 or 10. And for lots of people, those are, in a bigger view, honest options under certain circumstances. And, and again, that's the way God wants us to consider this kind of giving. Um, so, added to this thought, of course, are warnings and principles about being selfish. So, 
How am I to give from what I have? Now, this is not the intent of this message, but we have to be careful that we don't obligate every dime we have so we can't ever be generous. In other words, if you make $10,000 and you obligate yourself to, of that to spend you know, 9999 of it, it's going to be hard to be generous, right? So, this idea of determined also means we, sh we should be thoughtful, okay? The bank wants you not to obligate every dollar. I don't know what the current percentage is. Like, they don't like lending to people who have more than 55% of their, their, their um, income obligated in debt. Matter of fact, they won't give you money, most likely, if you have that. Well, the Lord's not requiring that, but I think there ought to be some thoughtfulness about not living so tight. And by the way, lots of us have been really poor, where we were living paycheck to paycheck. And a lot of people are probably still there. But there comes a time when you can be more determined to be thoughtful. So you have a pool of resources. I know, I know numbers of people who they give their tithe, they give their missions, and they have another fund for charitable giving. And they put money in that. And as things like a missionary comes through or something presents itself, they have that money and they give to that. I think that's pretty cool. And then sometimes people just choose to take the money they have, that they circled around for groceries, well, maybe not groceries, um, cable TV, or other discretionary things we spend money on time, they might not go eat out as much, that they, they might pull from those designated places to give, and, and they would forfeit those things for the sake of the Lord. I, I, I'm just saying this. You should be careful. Luke chapter 12, the story of the barn builder, here's a guy who had lots of money who circled all of it around for himself. And God said, no, that's not going to work. I have lots of goods. What shall I do? Excellent question. Horrible answer. This will I do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger. And having a bigger barn is not wrong as long as there's something in it you can share with other people. And so when I say give what you have, you know, it, it's, I'm, you're not getting an out by saying I have every single dollar obligated. I would say to you, you need to work to get out of that position. So you can be more free to be rich towards God, which was the point of Luke 2. So you have a dollar or 10 or 100 or 1,000. So you can be rich towards God when opportunities arise to do that. So give willingly from what you have. And then do this. Give us a team. And I'm almost done. In other words, pull your weight. Um, if you look on through here in verse number 13, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, for I mean not that other men be eased and you be burdened. I'm not asking you to give. Just do that. I'm asking, he basically says, I'm asking everyone to give from what they have. Verse 14, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may be supplied for their want. You're not in a drought. You're not undergoing a famine. So you have, you know, if you don't have money, you've got a chicken or whatever. You have something that you can give. And I'm not asking everyone to give $1,000. I'm asking everyone to give from the bucket that they have. And if everyone gives from what they have, then there will be, in a way, an equality. Because 10% is 10%, or a gift of the heart is a gift of the heart. And he's saying this, just pull your weight. As a church, let's all do something. If we ever have a special offering, you know, everyone, I think everyone should try to have a part. And so just do your part.
And I got to finish thirdly or fourthly here. Just realize this in giving. What goes around comes around. He makes this, 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 this idea. There's, there's a time of want in Jerusalem. But there may be a time in your life when you want. Okay? Now that principle is much broader than money. Right now, you may be happy. Right now, you might be able to be from Sunday an encouragement. So while you're happy and on top and can be an encourager, do it. Because the day may come when tragedy hits your life and you walk in here down the dumps and you want to want someone to be an encouragement to you. Does that make sense? You may have friends now, but you can enlarge your circle of friends because there may be a day when the Lord moves you and you don't have any. You with me on the principle? And so if you want friends one day, you know, then, then, then maybe you should be friendly to people today. In other words, just realize this, that it goes on to say in chapter 9, that if we are sparing, we're going to get back sparingly. But if we do it abundantly, then God's going to do that. Take um, verse, chapter 9, verse 6. Look there real quick, quickly with me. Chapter 9, verse 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, this exact same principle for the third time, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loved the cheerful giver. And then God tags this with the promise, for God or and God is able to make all grace abound towards you, giving is considered a grace, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. In other words, when you have a, a generous heart, God's saying that He's most likely going to be generous to you. And can anybody say they found that to be true? And the vast majority of us can. So the encouragement tonight is this, be a determined giver. There should be a time in our lives where we just, as we make our budgets, that we position ourselves in a thoughtful, purposeful way so when times of needs arise, we can be a blessing. Um, and share that in an equal way because the day may come when we need it. And someone may come to our help and rescue as well. Let me ask you to stand tonight if you would.